Now we're going to read together from God's Word, and we're reading today from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. We're going to read together just the first eight verses of the chapter. Isaiah 56, we'll read from verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come, and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man that doeth this, and the son of man that layeth hold in it, that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it, and keepeth his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that hath joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house, and within my walls a place and a name, better than of the sons and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger that join themselves to the Lord and serve him and love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Every one that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, Yet will I gather others to him besides those that are gathered unto him. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now, my text this morning, if you haven't already guessed, is taken from Isaiah 56 and verse 7. It says, Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Now, my theme today is God's house is a house for prayer. This is a very important text of Scripture. It is used four times in the Bible here in Isaiah 56 and verse 7 and in three other places. These three other references are Matthew 21, 13, Mark 11 and 17, and Luke 19, 46. And these three references 
were uttered by the Lord Jesus himself to the scribes and the Pharisees, he denounced them for making the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, into a den of thieves and robbers. And he told them, mine house shall be called an house of prayer. And of course, he was quoting directly from the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 56 and in the verse 7. There's a number of other references where it is alluded to that God's house is a house for prayer, mainly by King Solomon in the book of Kings and in Chronicles. But I want you to think of this this morning, because this is an important text of Scripture. The Lord actually gave me this text about the third week of January, and I have sort of kept it there in the drawers of my mind up until this present time as I have wrestled with it. Four times in the Bible, once by Isaiah, three times by the Lord Jesus, the words are quoted, mine house shall be called an house of prayer. So the sermon this morning has to do with the subject of prayer. I want you to think of three things. The importance of corporate prayer. See, when you look at this text, you need to see that it's a text about prayer. I think that's evident. It says in verse 7, And make them joyful in my house of prayer. The end of the verse, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. So, so prayer's the subject. You're agreed with that. Now, I believe in the importance of private prayer, having a quiet time, getting alone with God, waiting on him to draw near in a fellowship and speak a word in season to us. And you can pray privately anywhere. You can pray in the house. You can pray in the car, the field, the work, the school, the university, the street or even in a building like this that's used for the worship of God. But this text, while it may have an inference to private prayer, is, I believe, primarily it has to do with what we call corporate prayer. Corporate prayer has to do with God's people coming together for a season, for a time of waiting upon God. For God to come and visit them in grace and in help. Now, as I looked at this text, if I've wrestled with it, I saw, first of all, a great principle here. You see the word house, my house, underline that. It's used twice, my house and mine house. I want you to think of this. I don't believe it's a reference to a real, literal, physical building. I'm not even sure that it's a reference to the temple. I believe that God's people are like a building. Not a literal building, but like a, a literal building. In, in other words, they are a spiritual building. And it's a reference to a coming together spiritually of the body of God's people, a body of saved individuals, those that is redeemed out of the earth, a body of people whose names are in heaven, and they're coming together to pray to God. 
And that, I believe, is the great principle that is being taught here. If you turn in your Bible and go over to the book of Hebrews and look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, and you'll see an interesting truth there. Paul says, writing to the Hebrew Christians, verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, of course, that, that's a reference to things in heaven. And, and God's people are drawing near to God and recognizing the things that are in heaven. And the reference to Zion and the reference to the heavenly Jerusalem and the church of the firstborn. And you, 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 you've got to take that in its uh, truest spiritual sense. And remember also in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3 and in the uh, verse uh, 6, it says, But Christ, as a son over his own house, now listen to these words, Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? So there's a great principle here. So I don't want you to think of a literal house and think of the temple in Jerusalem and say, well, that's God's house for prayer and we better go there. When you go to Jerusalem, you're going to discover there's no temple there for it's gone. Okay? So that's why I say it's a great principle. Also here, there's a great prophecy. You see, why do I say that? If you read the context here, verses 3, right through our text and into verse 8, think of verse 8, The Lord God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel saith, Yet will I gather others to him, beside those that are gathered unto him. This is a great message about the ingathering of Gentiles into the house of God. In verse 3, neither let the son of the stranger that have joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord hath utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. You see, the son of the stranger, well, he was looked upon as a Gentile. And the, the eunuch, well, he was looked upon as a Gentile. You, you think in that day uh, of these sons of the stranger, these eunuchs, somebody asked them, Where are you going? Oh, we we're going into the temple. The house of God. No, you're not. You see, that was looked upon only for the Jews. And I know later that they had the court of the Gentiles and they could go in a certain distance into the outer court, but no further. Really, what they were saying to the Gentiles was there's no place for you among God's people. You, you have no right here. You have no name here. But what God is saying, and listen very carefully, if you've joined yourself to the Lord, if you serve me, if you love my name, profess to be one of my servants, keep my Sabbaths, choose the things that please me, take hold of my covenant, then I will give you a place in mine house. 
and, and I will give you an everlasting name in my house, and you shall not be cut off. You see, we can't divorce the text from the context. The, the context is important. And what Isaiah is saying here, there's going to come a time when the Gentiles' nations will be gathered into God's house by the gospel of grace. As the gospel of grace goes out among the nations, as there's this call to repent and be converted, repent and believe the gospel, and people are saved and joined to the Lord, the people that are saved and joined to the Lord, well, God's going to give them a place in his house. God's going to give them an everlasting name and they'll never be cut off. You see, that's why I'm saying this principle has to be understood. In light of the prophecy here, you, you see, it can't be a physical building. It's not a physical temple. I believe it's a spiritual reference to the church. The church of Jesus Christ all over the world. The church that's gathering here locally this morning is looked upon as God's house, God's building. And the church that gathers universally all over the world. And, and the church militant on earth. And the church glorified in heaven. God has his chosen people. His elect. And he calls them out of the world. And he calls them to repent and believe the gospel. And he calls them to be cleansed in the blood. And he, and he, he collects um, that company of people together. And he calls them to worship him. People that he may comfort. People that he can counsel. People that he cares for. That he looks upon as the apple of his eye. People that he communicates his truth with. People whose names are in heaven. People with an everlasting name. People in an everlasting relationship to him. So the reference to the house is a spiritual house. It's not merely connected with one building. The reference is to the, to the church locally and, and, and universally. And the church locally and universally is the true building of the Lord. Do you think of that Matthew is it 16, 18 reference? I will build my church. And, and that means he, he's building the body of his people together. The building here that we meet in this morning is really the meeting house. And anywhere we meet, as God's people, two or three are gathered together, my name is really a meeting place between God and his people. So I want you to think this morning of the great prophecy that's here, the gathering in of Gentile sinners and being, being added to the people of God. And, and, and then those people of God now with a name, an everlasting name, and having a place in the house of God, they gather as saints, as believers before the Lord. That's the great prophecy. There's a great picture here. The church of Jesus Christ is described here by and large as a house for prayer. That's the picture. The burnt offering, the reference to the sacrifice, the reference to the altar. Well, they also have to be viewed as spiritual offerings. Isaiah, I believe, employed these literal terms that the Jews were familiar with. But it was not a reference to Gentiles literally bringing in a sacrifice and bringing to a literal altar for a literal priest and so on and so forth. You, you see, whenever we compare Scripture with Scripture, if you turn over there, for example, to 1 Peter chapter 2 and the verse 9, 
This is what Peter wrote, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, now what sacrifices would we bring to God as, as we come in to gather into his house? What about the sacrifice of ourself? Isn't this what Romans chapter 12 is all about? After expounding doctrine for 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And, and of course, if you turn over there to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 13, if my memory's right, it's verse 15. We'll come back to this. Hebrews 13, verse 15. By him, that's Christ, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. So there's another sacrifice, not only the sacrifice of ourselves, but the sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And I could go through various references in the Bible to show you the spiritual sacrifices that we should be offering unto the Lord. And if you take the context here of um, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, if you look with me at verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Isn't that important? You see, Christ is our altar. And Paul's saying to the, the, the Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted, we have no other altar. We have no other mediator between God and man. By Christ, all our spiritual sacrifices of praise and prayer and ourselves and our money and our time, they're all made acceptable to God by him. You see, when Paul wrote these words, people, the physical temple was still standing. The ceremonial system of the Judean system was still in effect. The priest was still functioning. Jerusalem was not destroyed. It hadn't yet taken place in AD 70. It wasn't AD 70. The house of God was still standing. The Jewish Worship of God in the temple hadn't ceased. The literal sacrifice and, and, and uh, it was still being offered. And here's Paul and he's saying to these Christians who are suffering persecution, these Hebrews, he says, Christ is our altar. And those involved in that old system of the tabernacle and temple, they're not in Christ. And because they're not in Christ, they've excluded themselves. And in fact, they have no right to come and partake of this sacrificial, spiritual offering. Why? Because they're not part of Christ. Because it's only by him we offer ourselves to God. Only by him we offer prayer. Only by him we offer the sacrifice of praise. Only by him we offer whatever other gifts we bring, our time, etc. So the house of God refers to that body of God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, who are born again and washed in the blood and savingly joined to Jesus Christ. Those who love God and serve him and delight in the Sabbath have a day for worship, who have taken hold of his covenant by faith, who are offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. And what I'm saying is, and here's the picture, one of those great spiritual sacrifices is the beauty and the wonder of prayer. Remember, we're dealing with the importance of corporate prayer. And true prayer is the hallmark of every Christian. 
And if you're a Christian here, your life should be characterized by prayer. Over there in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 6, we read the words, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, now listen to that argument. That's very important. Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son, that's the Holy Spirit, into your hearts. You've been born of the Spirit. He indwells you. He resides within you. Because you're born of the Spirit, the Spirit of God prompts you to pray, to cry, Abba, Father. And over in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, and in the um, verse um, 15, it says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. You see, prayer is not an option. Prayer is part and parcel of being a true Christian. It's a natural consequence of being born of the Spirit, of being saved, of having repented and been converted and, and joined to the Lord and brought into the house of God. If God has made you his son and daughter, then the Spirit of God resides in you. The Spirit of adoption dwells in you, and you're prompted then to cry out to him in prayer. So, so let me make it clear this morning. The Lord's people are a, a praying people. And that's the emphasis of Isaiah 56, verse 7. It was Robert Murray McShane that said, What a man is on his knees before God is what he is. He'll not be any greater. He'll not be any better. And I've asked myself, that's why I haven't brought this in the third week in January, Lord, what am I like on my knees before you? What we are as Christians in prayer, and you know how long you spend in prayer, and so does the Lord, corporately and privately, and this is dealing with corporate prayer, but what we are in prayer, privately and publicly, that is what we are. And can I suggest this morning that whether it's organizing anything, whether it's a, a decision that has to be taken, whether it's at Kirk's session level or committee level, or whether it's business that you're involved in as an individual, I want you to think, first of all, we need to smother this in prayer. So before we, we act, let's go to God and cry unto him, Lord, help us, because the Lord must be in it. And if it's not of God, then it'll come to nothing. I've asked myself this morning, do we not need to see answers to prayer? We do. But if we're not seeing those answers to prayer, why are we not seeing them? The Lord hasn't changed. He said, I'm the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And whatever is the cause of the problem that's stopping the answer from coming, 
We need to continue in prayer. The Bible says continue in prayer. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And what we need today in the church of Jesus Christ and what the free Presbyterian church needs most of all is men and women who know how to pray, who know how to lay hold on God. And I have been in white-hot prayer meetings in the past and we have to acknowledge those white-hot prayer meetings are not as white-hot now as they used to be. Why? Has God changed? The answer is no. The problem really is with our hearts. The problem is really with ourselves. The problem is that I'm so worldly and carnally minded that that's become an obstacle to meeting with God. So, so the importance of corporate prayer. I've given you the principle. I've tried to show you there's prophecy connected with the principle. And the picture is the church in prayer. So that's really just the first thing and our time is gone. Let me just give you these other two points very quickly. I want you to think of the ingredients for corporate prayer. What are the ingredients for corporate prayer? Here's the first ingredient. It's a privilege to pray. If every child of God has the spirit of prayer, and prayer is the Christian's vital breath, then we have to see prayer as essential, something central in our lives. Corporate prayer is necessary, vital, and essential for the well-being of the church. But while that's true, we should see it as a privilege to meet God. Isn't it wonderful to be invited, exhorted, and call on, on the God of heaven? Isn't it wonderful that he has bidden us to come to the throne of grace? Hebrews 4 and 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Brethren and sisters, it's a privilege. It's a blessing to meet with God. I want to ask the question. Why is the prayer meeting then, the corporate prayer meeting of the church the least attended meeting in the life and witness of the church? Have we lost sight of the fact that true prayer is essential for all aspects and elements of true worship? That true prayer is essential, we've lost sight of this, for all aspects and essentialities of living out the Christian life? Do we not believe in the power of prayer? Have we lost sight of the fact that, that prayer changes things? See, it's Spurgeon preached a famous, famous sermon called Only a Prayer Meeting. I believe that we have failed to grasp the importance of the prayer meeting. We maybe give mental assent to the fact that we believe in prayer. We nod our heads. I believe in the power of prayer. We agree in theory. But do we really believe? It's a privilege to pray to God. I could list many great names that founded a privilege. David Brainard, North American Indians, praying hide in the land of India. John Knox, Robert Murray McShane. Oh, the list is endless. It's a privilege to pray. But just don't see it as a necessity, as an essentiality. 
grasp that it's a privilege. Do you know that there's churches in Northern Ireland, evangelical Protestant churches, and they have no prayer meeting through the week? The prayer meeting stopped. The attitude is we don't need to go to God for anything. We, we don't go in for that sort of thing. But why do we exist? Why does this church exist? Why does the free church exist? One of the reasons is we exist to offer the spiritual sacrifice of corporate prayer to God. Because mine house shall be called a house for prayer. So nobody can say it's unscriptural. And nobody can say it's not necessary. Here's one of the ingredients. It's a privilege to pray. If we're born of the Spirit, we'll be led of the Spirit to call upon God. But not only is it a privilege to pray, but what about the practice of prayer? Have you ever asked yourself, why does the Lord want us to gather to pray to him? Is it necessary? What difference does it make? I believe it makes a big difference because I believe that no prayer results in a hindering of the blessing of God. I believe it brings a blight to the work of God. And by and large, fundamentally, it's a sin not to pray. Samuel said, if I cease to pray for you, that he was committing sin. Now, now that's a fact. From Genesis to Revelation, it is clearly revealed as part and parcel of the will of God. This call, no doubt about it, seek ye my face, call unto me. And there's so many references, and there's some tremendous verses. Let, let, let me just, oh, the conscious of time here, let, let, let's look at just two references. Um, turn over there to Ezekiel, e e Ezekiel 36 and 27. Ezekiel 36 and 27. Ezekiel 36, 37. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock, as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn face. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now here's a tremendous verse. The praying of God's people is instrumental in securing the blessing of God. There has to be a seeking of him. A seeking of him in such a way, if you think of this word inquired, it means to track like a, a hunted animal is tracked. The heart and soul is in it. There, there's passion. And that's the responsibility of the church. I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Now, there's another important text, and I'm just skirting over this text. And um, if you turn there to Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, 
It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. And this, of course, has to do with the church gathering together to the administration of discipline. But, but think of these words. If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything, there has to be agreement. All right? Here's a reference in the gathering for prayer. The, the smallest gathering is two or three. And, and if two are in one heart and one mind. See, we're not in the prayer meeting to air our knowledge or, or, or to sound off steam or to get at other people or to let people know what you disagree with in the life and witness of the church. Anybody that does that is an indicating it's not real praying. They're not really in touch with the Lord. They're, they're certainly not being spiritually minded. They haven't the knowledge of his will. They're not in agreement. But not only is there agreement, but there's an asking. That they shall ask. Didn't the church gather in Acts 12 to ask for Peter's release from prison? Didn't they a desire for God to intervene? Wasn't it earnest, intelligent, passionate, fervent prayer? Wasn't it specific for Peter? Here's a crisis facing the church. And is there not many crises facing the church? Think of the crisis facing the church today in Northern Ireland. And, and surely in the history of God's people, when things were bleak and things were bad and there was a crisis, what did the church do? It gave themselves to prayer. So it has to be the practice of prayer. What about passion in prayer? Persistent pleading. So Abraham wouldn't take no for an answer. Remember that? 50 in Sodom? No. Then he came down to 45, and then 40, and then right down to 10. Five cities, two witnesses in each city, and he left off at 10 because he knew that was the lowest number that he could go to. But he was passionate, and he kept on pleading with God. And that's what we need. The posture, you can sit, stand, kneel, you can lie prostrate in your face. There's no absolute posture that we can dictate that's necessary. We have the pattern, men of God in the Bible, the Lord Jesus. Think of his prayer life. Isn't he a blessed example? The Apostle Paul, read about his prayers in the Bible, praying for the church. Abraham, Solomon, Hezekiah, Ezra, Daniel. One of the ingredients for prayer is to face the problem. Distraction in heart and mind. Sometimes pride comes in, foolishness, sin. Remember the psalmist said, if I revive, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Here's the, some of the ingredients. I'm only skirting over it for prayer. Now listen to this as we finish. Here's the instruction in corporate prayer. Be supportive. Plan to attend. See it as a blessing to come and meet with God. Remember you're part of God's family. And you're going to meet the Lord. And you're going to meet with his people. And um, surely your heart and mind should desire God's blessing for his work. Whether it's revival or, or, or a restoration of the church or for the Lord to save souls or remember the sick or the financial need or the preaching of the word of God and the witness of the outreach. I'm not saying you have to get to every meeting. If your child is sick, if you're looking after an elderly person, if you've got a legitimate reason, then see to that. The Lord doesn't require any more than that. But be careful what you put before the Lord. Remember, two or three meet together in my name. There has to be an effort. 
And out of the 160 hours in the week, can, can we not give four hours to God? We only have three meetings. The prayer meeting and the Bible study is the most important. Do you know that the late Albert Macaulay out of Ballymoney never missed a prayer meeting? So here's some instruction. Be supportive. Be, be part of the team. Could I encourage you just to be short? We don't need long prayers. Keep long prayers for a day of prayer. Keep long prayers for private prayer. The half nights of prayer. The days of prayer and fasting. Someone has said the shorter the better. Read the prayers of the Bible. Elijah, 63 words in prayer in Mount Carmel. Jabez, 41 words. David's prayer, Psalm 51. Moses' prayer, Psalm 90. Daniel's prayer, Daniel 9, Ezra, Ezra 9. The Lord's prayer. Uh, what about the high priestly prayer of Christ, John 17? Now, now read them and, and realize what is being asked of God. And one final thing, because our time is gone. Be spiritually minded. See, your heart and mind has to be in it. You, you have to decide. You have to, to want to do it. And don't come to the prayer meeting with a spirit of malice or ill feeling or a bad temper or in a rage. Because that attitude and that mindset will hinder your petition. And, 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 and if you come with a hurt, then you, you've got to confess that to God. And if you have hurt someone else through the week or before you come, then confess that to God. Remember what the Bible tells us, and with this I'm done. You'll be pleased to hear that. In Ephesians 4 and 32, it's 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We have to pray one for another. And over there in Peter, which is a very important reference in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in the verse 8, we, we, we read this. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, praying one for another. You see, that's to be spiritually minded. So I've given you something this morning of the importance I've given you something of the ingredients and I've given you something of instruction. And I pray that the Lord will help us, help me to give myself to prayer, especially for our church and country at this time.